I would encourage you now to find the book of Romans in your Bibles. And we are in Romans chapter 1. Our text this morning will be verses 18 through 23. So Romans 1, 18 through 23. We're kind of through the introduction to Romans now, and we're making a transition here uh, at verse 18. Verse 16 and 18 are kind of the theme verses of the whole book, and now we're transitioning into explanation of the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh Lord, now as we um, seek to hear f- from you and uh, consider your word from Romans 1 together, we pray for your help, Father, that your spirit would would come, that your spirit would so work in our hearts, Father, doing whatever is necessary so that we would trust in you only, that we would worship and serve you as the one true God. Help us to fear you, help us to trust you, and know our great need to be saved from your wrath. For this, in the name of Jesus, amen. The young husband had his annual physical appointment with his doctor scheduled for the next morning. A couple of days prior to that, he had gone in to uh, get his blood drawn in preparation for uh, this checkup like he had done every year for the past several years. And he had kind of wondered to himself, if this was just all a waste of time. And after all, in each of his checkups the past few years, the doctor never had any concerns about his health. So it wasn't even worth taking the time out of his workday to go in for this annual checkup. But then he had gotten a phone call, and his doctor's nurse had called to verify that he was still planning on coming in the next morning for his appointment, and she suggested that if it was possible, maybe have his wife join him for the appointment. So he had talked with his wife, and she had changed a couple of things around in her plan so she could join him there, and and now they were both just a little bit concerned. But he kept telling himself he felt just fine. He even convinced himself that he was feeling better Then he had felt in the last few years, I mean, he was eating healthy, he was exercising, he slept well. In comparison to his coworkers who were about his age, he was doing far better than they were. 
So whatever it was that the doctor wanted to talk to him about, he was sure it couldn't be that bad. After the doctor had, had greeted the husband and introduced himself to his wife, he pulled out his chart and began to go over the man's lab results. And he didn't waste any time. He said that he was afraid he had some very bad news. He told him he had cancer. It was leukemia. And he began to explain just how terrible of a a disease it was and what would happen to his body if the disease was allowed to progress. The more that the doctor talked, the more shaken and fearful the husband and his wife became. He mentioned an, an increase in infections, fevers, bruising, bleeding, vomiting, fatigue, breathlessness, increased urination with irritation, bone pain, until finally the doctor said the leukemia would kill him. Then the doctor told him that he'd already scheduled them to have a consultation at a well-known specialty clinic, and he assured them it was the absolute best place for them to go to receive treatment for this. He said if they would seek the treatment that was offered to them there, they would have a very good chance of overcoming the disease and still be able to live a long life. So as the man and his wife left the the doctor's office that morning, they definitely felt that they were carrying a very heavy weight. But they also left with hope. You see, we'll never seek out help until we are convinced that we are in need of it. So the scenario that I just described has played out in many examination rooms every day. The reality was the man had cancer, and unless he knew just how dire his his condition really was, he would never do what was necessary to get the treatment that he desperately needed. The doctor knew that unless he sought help for this condition, the man would die. Well, here in in Romans, uh, Dr. Paul, the apostle, is taking a similar approach with us, that unless we first know the bad news of our situation under the wrath of God, we will never seek the salvation that Paul just told us is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ in verses 16 and 17. So Paul's going to start with the bad news, and it begins here in verse 18. And the bad news is going to continue all the way until verse 20 of chapter 3. So the experience we are going to have going through these chapters will seem long, it will seem difficult, but we must work through it in order to help us to realize just how bad of a a situation sinful humanity is in. And then that will prepare us to hear the good news. The good news which begins in verse 21 of chapter 3. And it is wonderfully good news. Hopeful news. So hang in there as we make it through these chapters. Now, verses 18 through 23 this morning of chapter 1. Main theme that we see here is we all desperately need to be saved from God's wrath. 
Back in verse 16, we, we were told that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then in verse 17, we were told why. It is because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. We're also told there that the righteous shall live by faith. So, one might wonder, well, why do we need salvation? What do I need to be saved from? Why do we need this righteousness? Aren't I righteous enough in how I live my life? So those questions are on the hearts of people in our current secular society, especially when they hear Christians talk about being saved or trusting in the righteousness of of Christ. In our modern society today, we really have no sense of our spiritual condition, and therefore we have no idea of why we need salvation. This is the question our text begins to answer here in verse 18. So I've, I've divided up our passage under three headings, uh, each pointing to our spiritual condition before God and the trouble that our failures have brought upon us. So again, uh, look at your Bibles, verse uh, 18 through uh, 23, that's our text this morning, and I'd encourage you to follow along as we make our way through it. So first, verse 18, heading over this one is, our sins against God and others have brought God's wrath upon us. Our sins against God and others have brought God's wrath upon us. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Once again, our verse begins with a for or a because. So what's written here is a further explanation of the previous verses. Here is a further reason why the Apostle Paul is so eager to preach the gospel and why we need to hear the gospel, why we need salvation and the righteousness of God for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the wrath of God or the anger of God is his holy, righteous, personal anger in response to human wickedness. As you've heard me say before, if you want to know who God is, the most important way to get to know him is by reading the Bible. And as you read through the Bible, you will see that God hates sin and rebellion against him. The psalmist in in Psalm 5, verse 5, writes about God in this way, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes, you hate all evildoers. And in Psalm 11, verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves God. Violence. Not long after the Lord delivered his people from Egypt and rescued them through the Red Sea in that incredible act of deliverance, the people turned away from the Lord, forming a golden calf, and they bowed down and worshiped this calf that they had made with their own hands. And we are told that the Lord's wrath burned against his people there for their sin, and judgment came upon them, and many thousands were put to death for their ungodliness and unrighteousness. 
So it is consistent throughout the Bible that our ungodliness, our wickedness brings about God's wrath. And that's what Paul is telling us here. Now some refuse to accept that, arguing how could a loving God also be a God who will condemn sinners out of his wrath? Isn't God love? The God I believe in would never do such a thing. He is love. He's loving. This doesn't sound like love. But the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love would be apathy. It would be God not caring about whether or not we are destroying ourselves. God not caring about whether or not we're permanently separating ourselves from him and his holiness. That would bring us life. It would be God not caring about whether or not we are destroying ourselves. So do, do we want a God who, who is apathetic towards evil and injustice? Who just doesn't care about sin? No, God is love, and therefore God is passionate about justice, and he's passionate about his glory. We cannot live lives of injustice and disregard God and others without knowing we will be held accountable for it by him. Again, we are told what draws out God's anger upon us. It is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men or of humanity. First of all, here we are to know it is revealed. This is a present tense verb. Paul is saying that it was happening currently. It is a present day reality. It's not just something that God is reserving for the end at the great day of judgment. It is something that is currently being revealed. And we will see the different ways that it is being revealed as we make our way through the rest of chapter 1. And ungodliness or godlessness has to do with our relationship with God. It reveals our attitude toward God. It is a lack of reverence and respect for our creator, for the one who gave us life and breath and, and everything. It is a disdaining of him. And we're all guilty of it. But that's not all. We're also guilty, it says, of unrighteousness or wickedness. This is regarding our relationship then with others, our sinful and unjust actions toward our fellow man. So if if we put these two together, then they reveal our failure to follow the two great commandments to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, which follows the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. So rather than loving and honoring the Lord, we disregard him and do the very things he hates. And rather than loving our neighbor, we slander, from, we slander them, we steal from them, we try, not to, we, 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 we try to hurt them in order to elevate ourselves over them. And so by living in these ways, we show not only that we are under God's wrath, but that we also deserve to be. But that's not all. We're also told that God's wrath is revealed against men who suppress or hold down the truth by their unrighteousness. So this, this is our strategy. 
It's our strategy to keep ourselves from having to think about or deal with the truth about God and about his righteousness. Rather than turning away from wickedness, we pursue it. We pursue it more and more in order to dull our senses to the truth by our own sinful living. We hold it down by our sin. So then what do we need to be saved from? We need to be saved from God's wrath. And why is God's wrath upon us? Because we have all, we have all turned away from him, wanting to live our lives apart from him, wanting to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong and, and treat others in whatever way we want to treat them, thus showing our great lack of righteousness. And thus our world is in the trouble that, that it's in. And human lives are in such disarray. Marriage relationships and families divided. People not talking to one another because they can't stand each other. People avoiding other people. Living as if they were dead. Personal conflicts arising between friends and classmates and families and, and, and wars that like the one that just broke out yesterday in Israel, not to mention the war between the neighboring countries of Russia and Ukraine. I mean, what is going on? What is going on? Well, if we hate God, if we have no regard for him, we will have no regard for those made in his image. If we have no love for God, we will have no love for each other. If we are at enmity against those made in God's image, then we are ultimately at enmity with God. And that's what, what we see in our world. That is the condition of our world. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Secondly, in verses 19 and 20, our refusal to fear God is inexcusable. Our refusal to fear God is inexcusable. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. There have been a lot of, of great Russian novelists um, and in my opinion, the greatest of them is Fyodor Dostoevsky, uh, who in his most famous novel, The Brothers Karamazov, has one of the main characters, uh, the antihero of the book, Ivan Karamazov. He has some reason this way about what would be true if God actually didn't exist. And we were all just here by chance. So Ivan argues in that book, if there is no God, everything is permitted. There is no God, everything is permitted. That is what sinful man wants. We want to be able to do whatever we want to do without consequence, without any authority holding us accountable to a certain standard. And so we refuse to acknowledge God and we don't live our lives in the fear of God. We just do 
whatever it is we want to do. When someone tells us from the Bible, well, this is not what you ought to do. For God says this, we say, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do. That's sinful man's attitude. That's what we see in our world. But God's word reveals to us that we can't actually ever completely separate ourselves from the reality of God. We are not capable of completely ignoring him. For we all know deep down inside that there is a God, that he's there. And no one can use the excuse that God hasn't made it clear to us that he exists. It's like we, we tell our kids when they get old enough to know better than to misbehave. You know, well, you say, well, you know better. You know better than to do that. You know better than to behave in that way. Well, Paul is making the same argument, that everyone knows better. There isn't anyone who doesn't know better. Again, for as, as this says, for what can, be, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. We are all people who were created to worship. It's, it's, it's in our hearts to, to worship because we know that there is a God. He's made us that way. But what do we worship? We are drawn to worship what is great, what we consider to be glorious. As, as many of you know, I've taken high school students to Estes Park, Colorado, about every other summer uh, since I've been here, and uh, have, I've vacationed there myself a few times, and I'm always amazed at how many people there are in Rocky Mountain National Park when I'm there. It's a, it's a huge park, one of the largest in the nation, but it can feel a little crowded. I was even more shocked to, to learn just, just how many tourists of the park that the park receives every single year. 4.5 million people go there every year. It's one of the most visited parks in the national parks system. Four and a half million people come there each year, and most of them are going there to worship. They're going there to worship. And the Grand Canyon, I've only been there once, but they also uh, get almost 5 million people coming there every year to see that magnificent sight. And again, most are going to the Grand Canyon to worship. John Calvin, who always seems to help me to think rightly about God and our relationship to him, he said this about what we, uh, what we are able to observe in creation, observe in the skies, observe in the world that we live in. He said, the whole world is a theater for the display of the divine goodness Wisdom, justice, and power of God. It's a theater for God's glory. When we perceive the greatness and wonder of creation, not just what we see at night when we look up at the skies or what we see when we are looking out of an airplane window flying over the Rocky Mountains or, or, or watching you know, the, the planet Earth documentaries when they are showing and David Attenborough is describing for us what is under the ocean along the Great Barrier Reef off the coast of Australia, but also, also what we see when we recognize how orderly life is in this world. 
how our seasons change at the same time every single year. How the earth continues to make its way around the sun every single year. And how the earth rotates every 24 hours on its own axis and how we can predict to the very minute each day when we will see the sun peek over the eastern horizon and then disappear below the western horizon. Or when we observe and consider how amazingly simple and yet immensely complicated each of our bodies are from how we move to how we digest our food to how our bodies are able to use and store energy to how we can think and reason with one another. It's, it's simply amazing, glorious. As, as David described in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. They're revealing the knowledge of God. We know. We live in this world. We know. The Lord has made it obvious to us. There is a God who is the creator of heaven and earth, and we have no excuse but to acknowledge him. And anyone who's trying to put down that truth, trying to suppress that truth, is doing it in unrighteousness. They're acting against their own conscience. Our problem, though, and the reason why God's wrath is being revealed against us is that even though we know this, we refuse to acknowledge him. We refuse to fear him and give him glory. Therefore, as verse 20 tells us, we are without excuse. God's anger then is justified. And then verses 21 through 23, our rejection of God leads us to foolishly worship idols of our own making. Our rejection of God leads us to foolishly worship idols of our own making. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things." Verse 21 reinforces that everyone knows deep down that there is a God. The verse even implies that we not only know that there is a God, but that everyone knows the one true God. It says, although they knew God. This also points us all the way back to our first ancestors, to Adam and Eve and their offspring. From the very beginning of humanity, we knew God. They knew God. They had a relationship with God. But they rejected him. They turned away from him. And we've been following their example ever since. And verse 21 gives us a great clue as to what it looks like when we are in a right relationship with God and when we are not. When we are... We are humble before him, we fear the Lord, we recognize everything we have, everything we enjoy, every good thing comes from him and has been provided for us out of his sheer mercy and grace. In a youth group this past week, we were studying James chapter 1, verse 17, where it says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow Due to change, James references there that God, 
that the God who made all things is the same God who provides us with everything we need to live, and when we humbly recognize that and honor him and give him glory for it, publicly thanking him, not being ashamed to sing his praises with the gathered assembly, referencing him when given the opportunity to do so, that is when we are right with the Lord. But for those who have never given God honor and thanksgiving, and, and, and thanksgiving or, or acknowledge his mercy in their lives, then it reveals their pride, it reveals their self-righteousness, they believe they deserve what they have. They believe in their hearts that they've earned it. And that is why they're often so crushed emotionally when things don't go their way. Or when they lose what they believe that they have earned and deserved. So what happens then? Well, here's where we, we begin to see God's wrath being revealed upon humanity. Verse 21 again says, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The two verbs here that describe what happened to humanity when we turned away from God are pointing to a condition that was the result of some other power acting on them. It says again, became futile and were darkened. These are, these are passive verbs, often known as divine passives in the Bible, because they point to God's sovereign action upon humanity, becoming blind to the reality of God and his glory, and instead turning to worship images of, of men or birds or animals or reptiles, which humanity has done in various places throughout our history. This is a sign of divine judgment more so than just plain ignorance. So we were made to worship. If we won't worship God, then we'll worship other things. But we will worship. Of course, in 21st century America, we are more sophisticated in our, in our worship so that you don't see your, your neighbors heading off regularly to temples of, of Molech, which was represented by an image of a horned owl, or Ganesh, which is represented by an elephant, or countless other gods that have been worshipped throughout the world. No, no, we just worship ourselves. Or we worship our favorite sports team. Or we worship other people that we really want to be like and to impress. We believe that if we would just be able to find success or have enough money or be accepted in the right social circles, then we'd have everything we need that we will be truly satisfied and we make sacrifices in order to accomplish that. The problem is, no matter what it is we are seeking for satisfaction, in the end, it will always let us down, especially if it is ourselves that we're depending upon. In the end, all of our lives will reveal is how foolish we were, how misguided we were, how lost we were, how our minds were clouded by a spiritual darkness. And that's why Paul wrote what he, did, what he did here. He's attempting to show all who read or hear this that we are in great trouble. You are in great trouble. We desperately need the gospel, for we desperately need to be saved from God's wrath. 
Nothing keeps people away from Christ more than their inability to see their need of him or their unwillingness to admit that they need him. That's why Jesus said, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners. We must know, we must admit that we are sinners who deserve to be under God's wrath before we will ever seek the salvation that's only found in Christ. Earlier, I I referenced a quote from, from John Calvin on creation being the theater of God's glory. But you know, he also said that there is somewhere else, somewhere else we ought to look to see God's glory even more clearly. He writes, nowhere has God's glory shown more brightly than in cross, in which there has been an astonishing change of things. The condemnation of all men has been manifested, sin has been blotted out, salvation has been restored to men. In short, the whole world has been renewed and everything restored to good order. All of that there at the cross. As Paul will show us later in Romans, It is at the cross of Christ where God pours out his wrath against our sin upon one man rather than upon all of those who have or will put our faith in him. We will be spared suffering under God's wrath by putting our faith in Christ as the one who suffered in our place. That is where the great exchange took place. That is where God exchanged our sins for his righteousness. Christ took our guilt for our sins on himself and then provided those who put their faith and trust in him alone with his righteousness. So my friends, make sure you are looking to him. Make sure you know your condition, your situation how desperately you need the salvation that Christ offers you. Make sure your faith is in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for the righteousness that you need and be sure to then point others to him as well so they may also be saved from the wrath of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we are humbled this morning as we hear your word and we pray that you would Take your word that we've thought about and and, uh, talked through this morning. Take your word, Romans 18 through 23, and plant it in our hearts. Lord, may your word be a driving force for us to be humble before you, daily recognizing our need for what Christ has provided. And may we trust in him. May this word also motivate us, Father, to know the situation of everyone in this world. They need salvation. They need to be saved. They need their eyes open. So Lord, may we pray for them. May we do spiritual work on their behalf. And Lord, if, if, you, would use, if you would give us the privilege of sharing your words with them, we pray that we would have the courage to do so. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.